This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, the weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 14, and we're recording on Thursday, August 8th. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of BookRiot.com. Rebecca, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday, Jeff. You can feel the weekend. I'm going out of town next week. Ooh, yeah. The, I'm uh, uh, Brass I'm, ring is at the end of the tunnel. That's the my, metaphor, right? I am living for the Breaking Bad premiere right now. Oh, when is that? Sunday. Okay. Sunday night. I'm glad I'll be gone because I'm not a Breaking Bad person. I can miss all the hoopla hootenanny. Yeah, I'm going to have to hide from the internet <laughs> for a while just so I can... Wait, do you watch it later on demand? I usually do, but I think oh, we usually DVR it and watch it the next day. So I try to oh, hide gotcha. from the internet for a while. But I think I'm going to watch these last eight episodes live because I just don't trust the internet to not ruin yeah. it for me. Well, there's, you shouldn't trust the internet. That's definitely true about that. All right. We got, we got several, st- we got a lot of stuff this week. You yeah. think for early August, there wouldn't be a whole lot of stuff, but there's kind of some interesting stuff. Right. We here. keep thinking we might have a slow week yeah, and then maybe there's we're just no such be able thing. To talk about one story for like 55 minutes and that, that's just not going to happen. I mean, all right. So, uh, I guess there's always movie news. You know, that's one thing before we started this, I wasn't, I just didn't occur to me that there's always book adaptation news coming out always just bits and drabs and things and the bit and drab we got this is you're more excited about this than i because you've read the book and i have so excited go go for it i'm so excited so we talked a couple of weeks ago about how jeff bridges has been trying to make the giver into a film forever uh, and that they had cast the young man who's going to play jonas and news broke i think yesterday uh, that meryl streep is in talks to play the chief elder and i am super excited so um you know, you know Harry Potter, right? Can you give I me do. an analog for the kind, like how prominent of a role is this in, in the book? Uh, okay, so the giver. Are we talking Dumbledore? Or no, talking... so the the giver, who which is who Jeff Bridges is going to play. Right. He's like the Dumbledore okay. of the movie. The chief elder is sort of a side. Like she might have as much screen time as McGonagall. Okay, gotcha. Um, so why would Streep do this? Like that's like a secondary. Like, can't she? I don't know. Maybe. She Maybe because I mean, because it. it's cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the Council of Elders in the world that they live in is the group that decides like what job each child is going okay. to have and what they're going to train for, and um, is part of letting Jonas know that he's going to become the holder of the memories for this place. So um, it, it's not a huge role in the book, but I can see how to make it work on film. The chief elder will need to be gravitas. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Gravitas. They cut her and a nice check. Man, she Meryl Streep has of, uh, shooting and, buckets of gravitas. Yeah. Uh, this, we didn't do this, but speaking of movies and YA and sci-fi, the, Ender Games, the Ender's Game trailer. I just read the book this week for the first time. Mm-hmm. Blown away, dude. It's so good, uh, right? Uh, yeah, I was really surprised how much I liked it. Um, and I don't know what bias I had coming with it. It wasn't Orson Scott Card political stuff. I think... I just, you know, I'm I'm doing a summer of catch-up reading of stuff I missed, and each one of these things I've really enjoyed that I missed, um, and my it was my own baggage, I guess, getting in the way. But the new trailer, the full trailer for that came out. I think it looks pretty good. I think it looks good too. Lots of Harrison Ford in the, in the new trailer. It, I think it's going to be 
awesome. It, it looks really cool. And the the kid that plays Ender, um, Asa Butterfield, I think is his mm-hmm. name, looks like, he kind of, he feels like an Ender. He feels yeah, like an Ender. Yeah, I think he does. Um, okay. Should be, that should be good. There's also a trailer out for The Counselor yeah. this week, which is the movie that Cormac McCarthy wrote for Ridley Scott. And it's starring Brad Pitt and Michael Fassbender and Penelope Cruz and Cameron Diaz and Javier Bardem. So how do you like them, Apple? <laughs> Man, and it looks like what you kind of would think, really. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's tough and gritty, and it looks raw, and it and looks the, like it's going to be kind of fast-paced. The and, hashtag for it is, have you been bad? Oh, boy. Yeah, so lots I, of, there's there's a lot there, but that looks really there. good, too. It, so it I think feels, we're, we're bullish on all three of these. We are, these, and... Uh, in in a nice transition, we have our little segue set up here. We talked about um, book-themed summer camps like several episodes ago about the Percy Jackson one. And I was just reading yesterday that a summer camp in Tampa Bay has dedicated a themed week to the Hunger Games. Um, and hmm. <laughs> right, right. So it's, this is <laughs> fraught. Yeah. <laughs> um, here's the thing. They thought okay, all these kids love the Hunger Games, so we'll do a Hunger Games week. Clearly, these kids have either read the books or seen the movies yeah. or both, so they know that this is a fight to the death. Mm-hmm. But the camp is naturally, you know, a little uncomfortable about... Yeah, I don't think you can do that, fight ...about to this death. fight to the death language. So they're having the kids wear um, flags, like for flag football. Mm-hmm. And that's how you kill someone, is you, you know, take their flags. Um, and they... I think the camp maybe was a little had some ideas about how this was going to play out that aren't like they were thinking it would be team building (laughs) is what one of the counselors says in the, in the piece that we'll link to in the show notes. We were hoping that the kids would focus on team building activities. uh, And instead they're talking about all the ways that they could kill each other. Um, But they're not allowed to call it killing because that's too violent for these children who have seen The Hunger Games. I think I need to be elected ideas are, and people <laughs> need to run things like this by me. Right. This is it's like a good idea, but a bad idea. Well, um, no, so they're I think calling it's a it, bad idea that seems like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> they're calling it instead. You don't kill a fellow camper uh-huh. when you take their flags. You are collecting lives, which is somehow even creepier. It is creepy, like Reaper of Souls. Uh, yeah. like I think you could do a Hunger Games-themed camp if you... Made it about all the skills. Well, isn't that just capture the flag? I mean, essentially, right, like, like capture the flag plus tag football. Or right, flag like this football. Is, that sounds yeah, kind of fun. This is like capture the flag disguised as the Hunger Games. But you could do like a skills-based summer camp around the stuff that the Hunger Games um, tributes have to do. Like you could do archery and you could do, I don't know, rope climbing. And and also, and this is going to be the boring IP lawyer in me, but you can't just do this, right? Are they giving a cut of money to call? I got no idea. I wouldn't think so, right? I can't just have like, it's Harry Potter camp and we're going to run with sticks and you know, point them at each other. I can't just do that, right? I mean, yeah, I I don't know. If if someone wanted to get a... But running at sticks and pointing them at each other sounds super. <laughs> I'd like to call it my childhood. Um, Maybe you should not be the idea star of summer camp. <laughs> I didn't say Here I would come book. up with the ideas. Take this I, book could, and I, send I, a I would just say, uh-uh. Yeah, this is no, 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 no. Right, like they uh, maybe just wanted to have the Hunger Games name attached to this thing because well, they wanted to get people to sign up and pay to come to camp. Sure, but like, does team building really sound like how you want to spend your summer camp? Because I I mean, I'm not sure that I've ever been building with with teenagers. Like, what's the point of that? Yeah, 
I don't think I've ever been to a like team building ropes course that I thought that was awesome. And I'm so glad I spent yeah, my day. I don't know. They're not like middle managers at Goldman Sachs or something like this. Right. It feels like something sort of out of office space for, yeah, it, a, it, it for a summer camp. Or, or the office where they go to a hunger themed uh, camp. To have like a, you're clearly not very in touch with your campers if you're working with a bunch of teenagers and you think they're going to ignore the killing part and focus on team building so it's like it's like a hunger games camp except for all the stuff that w about the hunger games yeah exactly. <laughs> it's great uh, okay well that's so, i guess i think it gets a bad idea of the week yeah i think that maybe maybe it does yeah, not it does or at least poorly realized idea of the yeah, week. Yeah, seriously. Uh, should we do our sponsor? Let's do Let's it. Do our sponsor. This it's sort of tied to this uh, camp idea. So the sponsor this week is Among the Jainites: A Journey Through the World of Jane Austen Fandom, and it's written by Deborah Yaffe. Uh, she is a reporter. She's been a reporter for a long time, and she decided to dive into the world of Jane Austen fandom and go where the Jainites gather. Uh, so she goes to like Jane Austen fan conferences where people dress up in period costumes. She goes on a pilgrimage to historic sites in Britain that are related to um, Austen's time and her work. She gets into chat rooms and, you know, message boards online for Jane Austen fans. And she goes to the annual ball of the Jane Austen Society of North America, where she wears a period costume. Uh, and the whole exercise here is to understand how these passionate fans who love Jane Austen have transformed her from, you know, sort of a dusty classic novelist into this pop culture phenomenon that Jane Austen undeniably is lately. Um, so it's about how Austen's stories have endured and about this unusual zeal that her work inspires and also the diversity of the people's lives that the work has touched. I, I mean, I think I'm on the record, so I may as well say it and you can throw your tomatoes yeah. at me. Later, I don't really love Jane Austen. I, I've read Pride and Prejudice a couple of times, and I, I'm in that like, oh, I can appreciate the cultural significance of this book, but I don't love this book moment. But I think this sounds super fascinating and yeah. And well, this 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 rings a couple of your itches to mix a metaphor. Uh, Ring those itches. You like you like like cults. You're into that. Yeah, that's true. And you like literary stuff. And it's mm -hmm. kind of like a little literary. Not a, it's a little strong, too, cultist to call it too strong, but like it's a little world, right? Yeah, like little worlds and authors who immerse themselves in the stuff they're yeah. investing. I love that too. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I'm interested to see what some of her conclusions are because I don't have a good answer for why it not only does it Jane Austen have fans, but these sort of want to be living in Longborn sort of fans. Right. Yeah, uh, I, I have a copy of the book, and I think I'm going to have to read it yeah. soon to help me understand what what that's all about. And, um, and Austin, talk about being current. Like the several Jane Austen things. Like she's on. She was there. She's going to be on uh, some English currency. Then there's a whole controversy about that, mm -hmm. and just. There's a movie called Austinland coming out that sort of seems to be set in this world of Jane Austen fandom with yeah. Carrie Russell. And there's a new book called Longbourn. And a new book called Longbourn that is... From the, the um, servant's, servant's perspective. Point of view. It's Pride and Prejudice from the servant's point of view. Not um, to mention that giant Mr. Darcy statue coming out of a lake. Well, and then we have Mr. Darcy's Guide to picking up ladies or whatever that, on the show a couple weeks <laughs> i uh, really uh, want it to be mr darcy's guide to getting it on but it would yeah, only yeah. go to like I second base i don't think so <laughs> um so yeah that sounds really interesting so that's among the jainites um by deborah and then the last name is y-a-f-f-e if you're going to be doing 
Google searches for it. Um, thanks so much for them to sponsoring the show. Uh, and let's get on with the rest of the news. It's Stat, it's Stat Corner. Stat Corner. You Do we get to have a brief moment of methodology? I, I don't know. I haven't looked at the methodology, so you'll have to, Dr. Shinsky will have to clock in and tell me if these are, uh, <laughs> if these are okay. You know, I, I hope other the, you listeners like these stats because I think you and I really get into this stuff. We're we like definitely this, uh, we're data stat nerds. nerds. Yep. Um, and, uh, okay, so the first one, uh, a new study, and it's one of these huge professional studies, um, came out this week. Um, that's a, a giant survey. This is the U.S. Book Consumer um, Demographics and Buying Behavior Annual Review um, by Boker, and it's 800 bucks to buy the results. I was just looking at that. <laughs> like, I want to buy this and read the whole thing. Yeah, I bought Wait. three. One's coming your way. Um, <laughs> $799. But some people who uh, have uh, some ready cash um, bought it and or read the highlights and some of the highlights about the stats came out were pretty interesting. I, two of them jumped out to me of the ones that I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, it's long been known that women are most of the book buyers in North America, mm-hmm. and this came out and affirmed that. But I don't know what. Tell me what you think of the stat. The stat is now, they now women now buy fifty eight percent of books. I was expecting higher. I was expecting higher also. I mean, I don't know how it would have gone, but I was thinking 60 plus percent. I was sort of thinking like 65, 70. Right. Uh, 58 seems low to me for at least for the way that we talk about how important women are in in book marketing. And if 58 percent is accurate um, and if it's, you know, if that's sort of a long term accurate number, then. We're getting it really wrong in yeah. the way that we talk about. I mean, that means it's fifty-eight forty-two, so it's a you know a sixteen-point spread, and that number is up a couple percentage points mm-hmm. um, over the last few years. So that was the first one. The, the second one I thought was especially notable was forty-four uh, percent of books uh, were bought online last year, ah. which I don't know what number I would have told you if you asked me to guess. Um, I think I would come in maybe somewhere around. I thought maybe somewhere around between a third and and. And fifty percent, um, mm-hmm. you know, your own personal buying experience is going to skew um, how you do this. And since I'm buying mostly digital books these, well, all digital books these days, that basically happens online. Even though I route some of my purchases through bookstores who get a cut. But um, what do you think of that number? You know, I think that's that seems about right to mm-hmm. me. Um, Amazon has about twenty five percent of the book buying market. So yeah, total. Yeah, total. total right. um, but anything you buy from Amazon, you're buying online. Yeah. Um, so then thinking about so Kobo, iBooks, Barnes & Noble. I guess only 19% of books are non-Amazon online purchases, right? If they're 25% of the total market and 44% of... Yeah, yeah, I guess. Um, someone, someone out there, check my math. <laughs> so that, that's interesting, too. And that number is up 4% um, over a year. Year mm-hmm. over year, so it's it's still growing. Um, so essentially, ten percent of the total, but four yeah, percent net year over year. That forty percent bought online. Also, the flip of that then is that fifty six percent of books are still bought in still bought on in Costco's either and bookstores right, and Barnes, Barnes and Noble and, and airports and, 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 and yeah. Uh, so 
That I think that's like that is the number that I want to talk about more is that yeah. we're we're getting to that point where online purchases are um, closer to even and then we'll probably approach the majority. And we talked last week about how um, fiction ebook purchases will uh, outnumber fiction mm-hmm. print purchases by the end of next year. Do you know off the top of your head if there's what the gender breakdown in library usage is? is oh, I is have it, no is idea. Is it mostly women? That I have no idea. Um, um, yeah. Well, maybe we'll, I'll try to find a staff for yeah. that next Or if time. you're listening and you yeah, know this. You know, if you're you, a librarian, I know there are librarians out there. Podcast at bookriot.com. Let, Let us, us know. know. Find, us a, find us a study. It could be a few years old. Um, that's something we'd Yeah, like that, to that's an interesting question about libraries. Um, a lot has been written about men purchasing ebooks and that the rise of e-readers mm-hmm. had led to an increase in men purchasing books and reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a lot of speculation about how and why that worked. Like a lot of it falls into sort of the, those gender stereotypes yeah. of men just like gadgets to poke dudes at. Dudes like if, gadgets. And if you give the dude a gadget, he will read. That's like, that's a grown up children's book. <laughs> if, right, you give right. a, if you give a dude a gadget. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot that we can pull out here, but I don't have 800 bucks to buy this Bowker. No, maybe survey. someday we can. Um, maybe You know, somebody year. there should break out, like, here's the 20 pages about the book industry that you can purchase for $20. I and would, I would do that. I would totally yeah. do that. I mean, break the whole it thing's by, about the book industry, though. I mean, that's the problem. Break it out by a subject. Is yeah. it? Yeah, it's all, it's all, it's all. Oh, book consumer, dim- oh, yeah. right, never mind. Hmm. But maybe the chapter could be about online and you could pay 10 bucks for it. Right, could you just break out the facts that are interesting to the book riot editors yeah. and then we'll could pay you 20 bucks for it? Could you make it easy for me Thanks. and cheap? Thanks very much and don't <laughs> right. worry about your mortgage. Uh, more stats. Stats, let's do it. So audiobook sales. Um, we've talked, I think on the show before, but also off uh, offline about how we're just hearing a lot of chatter about audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot more on Twitter and on blogs, and we're even running um, the audio file as a regular column on Book Riot that's about audiobooks. And there just seems like there's a it's in the ether that audiobooks are more interesting than they once were. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we joked about you know one time when we were younger before you could have mp3s you got an audiobook you got like 58 cds of your lord of the rings set right i, I remember carry, cassettes, cassettes like yeah, giant right. plastic you folders of cassettes yeah, you like got to flip them every 30 minutes and just a complete <laughs> disaster um, and it took up the whole way way back of your 1987 pontiac parisian uh, wood-sided station wagon um, but year over year According to this article that was in the um, Wall Street Journal uh, at Hachette, one of the big six publishers, their audiobook sales were up 31% year over year, which is huge. Huge. That's insane. That's an insane number. Um, and, you know, it's it's both shocking and not surprising once you think about it. And what the um, vice president in charge of audiobooks over at Hachette says, well, smartphones just make it so much easier. Yeah, that's Over Wi-Fi, the... you can get it instantly. Uh, it's fast. It's always with you. Um, you right, the quote here is what every, now everybody has an audiobook player in their pocket, right? right? Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, even when I had my uh, $220 Discman that I saved up for in uh, 1989, even if I wanted to listen to audiobook, am I going to carry around the 30 CDs in my backpack or whatever? Probably and, not. And, and they were so expensive, too. Mm-hmm. Um, where an audiobook now can... They're generally more expensive uh, than a uh, paperback and sometimes even the hardback, but compared to how sure. it used to be, 
it's just a much better deal and listening experience. So I'm not surprised they're up, but right. Yeah, I think the like financially it makes more sense now. An Audible membership yeah. is like fourteen ninety five a month right. for one credit that gets you that one credit is good for almost any audiobook that they right. have in yeah. there. Where if you buy audiobooks on CD, it's super expensive. Super expensive. For... I understand it's like a lot of just like physical material, sure. and packaging and but printing. Super expensive. And before Audible existed, if you had an audiobook on CD, you had to load them one disc at a time into like iTunes, right. which I I have done. Like, oh, uh, why? You know, why did you do that to get it on your iPod? Yeah, I was. Um, it was a couple. It was like five or six summers ago, and my dog was a puppy and needed to be walked all the time. So um, I went to the library and I checked out a couple audiobooks and loaded them onto iTunes and then, you know, could listen to the audiobook while yeah. I was uh, and I don't know, maybe that was some sort of piracy to like take <laughs> no, an, audio, an no audiobook idea. from the library and put it into my Well, iPod your friend my, who did it um, I'm right. Sure yeah. I, I've heard people do this, yeah. but I would, I would never it makes uh, me wonder if, uh, if that kind of growth continues anywhere close to that, frankly, if more audiobooks will be available. Cause you know, even, um, sponsor of the show, uh, full disclosure, Audible has a hundred thousand titles, but compared to the great ocean of books coming out every year, you know, most, most books don't get an audiobook treatment. Right. Um, and especially mid-list and specialty books don't get audiobook. But I wonder if as that market expands, the selection will improve. And I wonder if prices will get dr- driven when it, down. It seems to me like this is a good opportunity for some exciting backlist. Yeah. Also, um, and right. some classics that maybe aren't on audio because publishers do like to take their hot new titles and, and at least right now make it. Anything that's hot in hardcover also available on audiobook because they mm-hmm. know that this is happening with these audiobook sales. But not everything is really not everything lends itself super well to audio. And I was just reading something. Um, I read a review on a blog last night of Marisha Pessel's Night Film on audiobook, mm. which um, is a really visually driven book. And I was thinking, how would that work? Mm-hmm. Like. The the page from which this comes is designed to look like a New York Times photo slideshow. <laughs> um, well, maybe some of them just aren't yeah, know, built to, but to to handle that. Thirty one percent year over year, and in a market, you know, in a market where it's flat to up or down in the low single digits, that's a it's an enormous bright spot. Um, and I would I would guess since they are expensive, that the margins are pretty good mm-hmm. um, on those things. So we we should we'll watch that. We'll watch audiobooks and see what's going on there. Well, you think of this podcast as an example. It's easy to get. Mm-hmm. You know, people can take it with them, and they you don't have to be sitting down and devoting your entire attention to reading a book. Um, you can be, you know, mowing the lawn or on the train or walking the dog. Cooking dinner, yeah. Cooking or cleaning the pool or burying the bodies or whatever um, work you have. What do. audiobook does one listen to while one buries bodies, Jeff? I feel like there's a book where I post. Maybe we'll get around to that. At some, <laughs> I don't have a. I don't have a good uh, answer for you. Um, should we do author birthdays? Let's do it. Who? We who got has birthdays two this week? birthdays. We'll do two this week. Uh, let's, the first one, Charles Bukowski, mm. poet, novelist, probably one of the most quoted. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, um, uh, sort of. Writers of the 20th century. He was born August 9th, 1920 in Andernach, Germany. Uh, his parents immigrated to Baltimore, Maryland when he was three years old. Um, he, you know, I don't know if you know anything about him, but if you've read the writing at all, you can kind of guess that he had a tumultuous life. In his early days, he flitted from thing to thing and person to person and worked for a long time in the post office while he was doing some writing. And an editor at Black's 
Barrow Press sort of realized that he believed in Bukowski's writing, but also realized how much having the full-time job at the post office was keeping him from doing what he could. So he said to Bukowski, if you leave your job and write full-time, I'll support you until you can support yourself with um, your writing. And he did. And, nice. And it worked. And Bukowski stayed with Black Sparrow Press his entire career um, because he felt loyal to the press and... Um, when he could have jumped ship to a larger house later, he didn't. So the, I, I think that says a lot about him for all of his That's a trouble. good story. That's a good story. I like right? that story. Long a champion of independent presses and small presses, but he put his money where his mouth was when it came to staying loyal to someone who took a chance on him um, and stuck around Black Sparrow Talk press. about like a thing that publishers couldn't do yeah. today. I guess I the know. modern version of that is we'll give you a really big advance so right. you can write this one book that we think we can sell yeah. a lot of, but... I just, I guess maybe a really small well, geez, press. fiction and poetry doesn't really, I mean, you already have yeah. the book, generally speaking, and yeah. nonfiction you can advance for a right, like a, to be written. A, a, a small press with a large endowment somehow maybe could. Yeah, maybe. Pay, it's, it's a patronage model, basically, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 that's definitely the case. Um, almost like the Renaissance, like where the right. Medici's were like, we're just going to pay you and you make stuff that we think is cool. It'd be cool if we... You know, there's a lot of talk about what happens if, you know, blah, 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 the publishing industry falls apart and there's not enough money for authors to make money. Side note, most authors don't support themselves from the writing. Like, what about a more of a direct patronage model? Like, you know, George Soros, there's just like $20 million to support 40 novelists. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to worry about making money. They just have to turn out a book every few years. I guess Guggenheim fellowships and things like that. But those are one-time sort of deals. But like more of a direct patronage model is an interesting way of thinking about um, how these things can work. Okay, that's Bukowski. Second one, Alex Haley, born August 11th, 1921. Um, he most famous for, well, he's most, he, his own name is most famous for writing Roots. Mm-hmm. But the best known book he was a part of was he co-authored with Malcolm X, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, really interesting guy, interesting life story. Um, went from dropping out of school college to the Coast Guard to be named chief journalist for the Coast Guard, which was a create which was a position created for him because he was such a a great reporter and such wow. a value to the Coast Guard. And got into journalism and, and my my that's not even my factoid. My factoid for you is he conducted the first Playboy interview um with Miles Davis that appeared in the September nineteen sixty two issue of Playboy. and it became sort of a cornerstone and still is to this day. Oh yeah. An important part of um the Playboy brand, weirdly, and it's you know an ongoing joke. You know, I read it for the interviews, but it was a groundbreaking work. Miles Davis talked about racism in his life, and kind of a thing you wouldn't see in any other kind of mass market publication um, at this time. It set the tone for what become a staple of the magazine. Haley conducted a lot of other interviews for Playboy, and this one really jumped out at me is that his interview he did with Martin Luther King for Playboy was the longest King ever gave to any publication. Wow, that's um, interesting. I wonder if those are available online. I love Playboy yeah, interviews. Yeah, I think they are. I think I remember a few years ago, and by a few years it could have been 10 now because yeah. my sense of time is all screwed up. There was like a big box set of the Playboy mm-hmm. interviews um, that I remember sort of um, – coveting that and it's costing like what it felt to the time like 10 bajillion dollars <laughs> so I, I don't remember um, or maybe as like digital singles yeah. those could work but i i think the playboy interview is always fun and, and you're right it is a joke about people reading playboy for the yeah. interviews but they're always interesting and the interviewers ask questions that yeah. uh you don't but, get in other publications but that and joke and that disjunction between you know 
ladies showing it all and these really serious interviews was Alex Haley's really doing. If that yeah. first interview wasn't such a hit and so interesting and important, then we wouldn't have, we wouldn't this. have this particular institution. Very so that's cool. Alex Haley, born August 11th, 1921. I don't know if I said in Ithaca, New York. Nice. All right. You want to take us out of that into our I next I do. Door? Yeah, cool. I do. We have some cool uh, library ebook related things. Last week, we talked about the awesome Kansas State Librarian yeah. who was, uh, she had started an ebook lending program in the Manhattan, Kansas um, airport. And this week, I read more about this awesome lady. She gets the good job of, maybe the good job of the year award yeah. uh, from us, but she uh is you know very upset about how difficult the big six prim- the six major publishers I guess now it's five since Random House and Penguin have combined but how difficult um, if not impossible it is for libraries to purchase ebooks from the big six um, and then to make ebooks available to their patrons for lending mm. um, this has sort of been an ongoing conversation as ebooks have become what they are in the industry um, about how many times can a library lend out an ebook file before they have to buy another copy of the ebook to to keep lending out. So she has started a Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash the big six ebooks and it's the number six. Um, and it's dedicated to bringing attention to this and I guess to lobbying uh, for uh, books that people want to be available uh, from big publishers that aren't available on ebooks. So some of their status updates show like um, the White Princess by Philippa Gregory ebook is not available to libraries. It's published by Simon and Schuster. The Light of the World by James Lee Burke not available to libraries. Published by Simon and Schuster, and then their status updates sort of go on and on. Uh, the banner across the top shows that's really uh, interesting. Yeah, sort of a breakdown of how these six publishers handle ebooks. Like um, Random House has libraries paying three times the commercial price for ebooks. HarperCollins, according to this site, offers a fair price but limits to 26 checkouts per copy, and there's no expiration. Penguin offers what they call a fair price, um, but they copy the exper- uh, copies expire one year after purchase. Mm. Um, Macmillan will not sell to consortia K through 12 or to academic libraries. Yeah. So, I mean, all. and Simon and Schuster has a grand total of two, two titles type. available to libraries. They're currently as part of a- currently testing a library ebook pilot program. <laughs> like this feels really late in the game to be testing a thing. First of all, yeah, I mean, I guess it's better than not at all. Yeah, um, but boy, that seems rough. Uh, so kudos though to this yeah. Kansas State librarian for doing something about it on Facebook where people live. You know, live and find all kinds of information. I think that's smart to go to where the people are to get your, to get your story yeah. out. Um, but man, that's, that's rough. It seems rough. I, I, libraries are one thing I wish I knew a lot more about, um, just in a lot of different ways I've become interested in them recently. Uh, you know, a lifelong user of libraries, but especially how these things are put together. And this is a new, beachhead for publishers and libraries and i don't i don't have a sense of what's fair mm-hmm. um what would be reasonable i mean i don't fair price plus 26 checkouts limit per copy that's what harper Collins does that seems pretty good well right? i mean the flip of that though is if you're a library and you buy gone girl in print you pay like basically the hardcover price for the print copy and you can lend it out as many times as you want Forever until right. it falls apart. But how many times does a book like that get checked out before it's before it's uh, before it does fall before apart? Before it is, you know, it's no longer usable, or someone lost it, or you know, it got 
peed on by someone's dog or something. Like, I don't know what the, the life expectancy of a print book in a public library really is. That'd be interesting to know. Podcast at bookride.com if you have information about this. Librarians, we yeah. need you. Copies expire one year after purchase. So I guess, you know, so an ebook, this is one file equals one checkout at a time, right? So if, mm-hmm. it, it, if someone would have to quote unquote return it before it get checked out again. Right. Um, I would guess that most books don't get checked out 26 times. Like you, you use the example of Gone Girl and maybe that's an edge case. Um, but do most books that libraries buy get checked out 26 times in the first, you know, five or 10 years before they drop out of circulation or get put into the sale pile or something like that? That's yeah. all stuff I would like to know. Uh, yeah, I think the calculus librarians have to do about which books to buy and how many copies of those books mm-hmm. to buy based on customer, you know, patron demand um, is certainly really complicated and also very interesting. So like Gone Girl would be an edge case. But when Gone Girl came out, we had a contributor at Book Riot who was like number 187 or something Uh on her library's hold list for it. And I imagine if they had it available as an ebook that the waiting list would be maybe not quite as long uh, with fewer people owning e-readers than reading print books, but pretty long still. So the like the big titles, you're going to get checked out 26 times in a year, maybe, maybe more yeah. than that. And then there would probably be plenty of titles that wouldn't get well, riddle checked me this, out at all. Riddle me this, Batgirl. Um, what, wouldn't the most reasonable way of pricing this and be to charge per checkout? I why, mean, why can't you do that with ebooks? Why can't you do it with print books? You could. And just establish what a checkout is worth. Mm-hmm. Um, because then no one gets shortchanged and, you know, I don't know. That just seems to me like if it's really going to be, if really what the publisher is worried about here is getting shortchanged on how much use the book is actually getting, um, cause a hardcover book, they just buy the book and they can check it out at infinitum until it, right. It becomes, um, and I mean, and theoretically, you know, an, an ebook file, is not subject to somebody's dog peeing on it or to the spine falling apart. So it could be checked out forever. And maybe that's where this concern comes from. Like we, as a publisher, we know that after a certain number of checkouts of a print book, they're going to have to buy a new one from us because it will fall apart. But one ebook file really could last forever. And how do we compensate for that financially? Random House basically said you pay three times a commercial price and you have it forever. It looks like Mm -hmm. that's what it says here. These other ones are saying you pay... A commercial price, but we're going to put some limitations on it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I sort of like that Random House model. Yeah. You know, you're going to pay well, it'd a premium. It would be nice if it was a choice. Like if they had a big front list title coming out that's like, you know what, this is going to be, you know, a new Hunger, like if, or the new Veronica Roth, right? Right, that yeah. comes out, a liege virgin. Allegiant. Um, Allegiant. Virgins. Allegiant. I like. Allegiant mm-hmm. virgins. You know, they, you know, the library could say that one we need, we'll pay the three times commercial price for each one of those because we'll know we're checking out a jillion times. Sure. But for say a mid list title, they don't really know what it's going to do. Maybe the fair price, we want to go fair price. Um, that's 26 checkout limits per copy. Right. The, the one that I really, I don't make much sense of is the expiration after one year. Like, cause, because then as a library, you have to be pretty certain that that book is going to be checked out a certain number of times in the year to make it worth your while to yeah. 
buy it, which limits the number of titles that is available to the library's group of yeah, patrons. That's really you know, like, um, plenty of books, I'm sure, are purchased in print and sit on library shelves and aren't checked out for a year, and then they get weeded um, out of the collection. But within with an ebook, it's it would be the same story. Can we afford to keep this on our digital shelves? Is it worth the money uh, if it's not going to be checked out? And what if it gets a like a surge later yeah. on? In yeah, interest, I'm, but your your first copy expired. I'm going off script here. I just had an idea. Do it. So I wrote a post a while ago on the site about private lending libraries. Yeah. Where, you know, you basically pay a membership fee to join a private lending library. And they generally don't, you know, it's it's as much about having space to go work in as is actually, actually the, the actual collection. Wouldn't it be cool if we could, like, form our own, like, individual lending libraries around ebooks? So let's say you and I and some of our friends and some book riot people or whatever who signed up, we would we would pool money and then we'd buy ebooks from HarperCollins and that ebook would get twenty six checkouts, hmm. and we could just sort of pass it around and once it's used up, great. Or Penguin, like that would be cool, right? You could yeah. form like your own little lending library circle. Um, I mean, and you can sort of like in a smaller scale, you can hack that. Now, sort of, like yeah. um, one of our contributors wrote a while uh, a while back about how her family, uh, like five or six different people with five or six different iPads, all share the same iBooks mm-hmm. account. Um, so her mom or her dad or she will purchase a book that several of them are interested in, and it goes onto the iBooks shelf, and then they take turns with with who has it. Mm-hmm. Like you know, you could you could sort of do that already in a small thing. And I guess I, those are all moves towards like kind of a rental model. Yeah. Right, of some kind. Um, that's interesting. Interesting stuff. So that's um, facebook.com backslash the big six ebook six, the numerable. Forward num- slash, Jeff. For- you in yeah. the slashes. Forward slash. I don't know where I have it. <laughs> you just from. want everything to backslash. Yeah, okay. Um, let's do, let's go to Sony. Sony. So this is my cool book tool. Of the yeah. week, uh, Sony has an ebook store, which might be a surprise to you. Um, back when uh, when e-readers first, you know, boomed, we had the Kindle and the Nook, and the Sony Reader had a good share. I have no idea how many of them they sell <laughs> anymore, but Sony is still trying to make a go of it. And so now they have the Sony Emotion matchups. Uh, first off, the copy on this thing is great. It starts with "We're in a glass case of emotion," which uh, is an Anchorman quote, and so they get big points. <laughs> for me, I can hear Will uh, Farrell in my head going, I'm in a glass case of emotion. Uh, but it says, how are you feeling today? Uh, and what would you like to read? And there are choices like in love, sneaky, nostalgic, nosy. I'm feeling heartbroken. I'm feeling conflicted, secretive, hungry. Uh, and these are not, an, it's not an algorithm, uh, but they are editorial selections. It looks like based on these different moods. So if you're feeling nostalgic, it recommends Life After Life by Kate Atkinson. And there's sort of a one sentence blurb that goes with each one. So when you hover over that, it says, what if you could live again and again until you got it right? Uh, if you're feeling nosy, you get Shore Cliff by Ursula de Young. Mm. Wade through the secrets revealed as a family spends a summer in close quarters. Uh, that sounds like right up your alley, Jeff. <laughs> family spending I'm downloading summer in it close right now. quarters. Yeah. Uh, if you're feeling hungry, it says hungry like a wolf, that is, a knockout paranormal romance from a best-selling author. Uh, so, I mean, there are tons of options here. Are you feeling seductive? Are you feeling wild and free, homesick, curious? Uh, I think it's kind of uh. cool. Uh, somebody on Twitter this morning raised an interesting question of are these purely editorial selections or is mm. there co-op? 
there. Um, if you're listening and you don't know what co-op is, that's the um, sort of kickback that bookstores, both like Barnes and Noble and independent bookstores, and I would presume uh, online bookstores as well, get when they feature titles that publishers are currently promoting. Right. Um, so like an indie bookstore can get co-op for putting a certain title in their newsletter or for featuring it on a certain shelf in the store. Um, and there's there's nothing on this Sony page that indicates one way or the other, but um, clearly these are humans who gave thought to matching up books with moods. Right. It's not driven by a computer. It's kind of interesting. That is interesting. I guess, are you a mood-driven reader? You know, sort of. Like, um, right. I get more in a, like, okay, I just need to read something that I can totally fall into um, or plow through and not have to analyze very much. So like, I know mm. that when I go, when I travel, I really like to read food memoirs while I'm traveling because I just sort of get lost in all the senses in the book and I'm not, you don't really have to track a story. Right. Um, like Bourdain's food memoirs, I think are great for when you're traveling. The voice is fun to hang out with for several hours. Um, but not not really. I sort of read the same kinds of things like year round. Yeah. Um, I'm but just I wondering, do... like, it's like it's kind of a cool idea. But I'm wondering if it's a cool idea that anyone is actually interested in using. Yeah. When I when my reading is mood driven, it's super specific. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like and idiosyncratic, my, right? Yeah, yeah. totally. Uh, like my husband is out of town, and I'm on my second glass of wine, and I'm feeling. Uh, you know, just thoughtful about things. And so I would like to read Lily Tuck's next book that doesn't exist yet about right. <laughs> people looking back on white people looking back on marriage. Right, exactly. You know, like that's, that is what I want a recommendation engine for. Yeah. I guess my reading is so title driven that I, you know, I finish one, I'm like looking around for what I want to read and it's like, oh yeah, I heard about that. Let's do that. Very rarely is it. I'm looking for a, um, square peg for a square hole, so right. to speak. Um, but maybe there are readers out there that want to try it out. It could be. Yeah, One thing we've learned is people read in a lot of different ways and pick their right. books for a lot of different and reasons. Everybody is trying to figure out the right way to do this book discovery thing yeah. online. And of the attempts that I have seen, this is like the site looks slick. We'll drop a link to mm -hmm. it in the show notes. Um, it has that. It, there's a pleasant editorial voice explaining each selection. It's a cute sort of it's fun to interact with. It's cute. You hover over the mood and then the book cover gets revealed. So it's sort of a surprise what's going to be That's interesting. Yeah, I going mean, to be behind feeling there's dark. a little bit of a hook and you want to play around with it and you find out some about some books you probably didn't know about. And mm -hmm. um, that's that's a tool. I mean, that's like if, if discovery is a problem and you and I both have our questions about how much it is or isn't a, a, a real problem that needs solving. If that if it is a problem, this is certainly a reasonable and interesting way of uh, of tackling the problem. So, yeah, I think and it's cute. Cute. Also, Anchorman quotes. Hey, you know what? You could do a heck of a lot worse. Speaking of book discovery. Yes. Tell me. New books. We got new books yeah. this week. Uh, the first one is called Hot House by Boris Kochka. Uh, the Art of Survival and the Survival of Art at America's Most Celebrated Publishing House, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Uh, this is definitely like a publishing nerd mm -hmm. book. Uh, but Juno Diaz called it Mad Men for the Literary World. And FSG is arguably the most, if not one of the most, uh, influential American publishing houses. They're home to an unrivaled 25 Nobel Prize winners. 
Uh, and Kochka worked for FSG for a long time. So this is sort of an insider's tale of like the golden days of publishing and the rise of a publishing house. Um, I haven't read this, but good friend of Book Riot, Josh Christie, uh, yes. read it months ago and is still talking about it. I'm starting to see it sort of all over the I Twitter. I think I'm going to read this at some point. I'm not sure, but FSG it, is one of the few imprints that I pay attention to mm-hmm. like closely and see what they're doing and read a lot of what they do. Um, so I'm interested in that. And Mad that, Men for the Literary World. Right. That's, come on. All of your bells. Jeez. Like <laughs> just the ring of Notre Dame's up there ringing bells. Um, and, and I think maybe just a fun insider look even for people who don't work in the industry and, and a nice, I think it's a nice balance um, to the merchants of culture, which you and I have <laughs> yes. both read, which is like a sociologist from outside looks at publishing and explains how it works. Yeah. So this is the like martini splashed uh, insiders story. Yeah, uh, so that's Hot yeah, House by Boris. Pretty interesting. Uh, I'm I'm interested. Gotta say, gotta say. Yeah, I'm interested in that too. I'm sure there are scandals. I have heard, oh, you know, great publishing scandal stories. Right. Uh, the other uh, new book that I'm super excited about this week is The Realm of Last Chances by Steve Yarborough. Uh, Emily Gatlin at Book Riot picked it as one of the books to watch for this month. It is. Um, you can just wait for all of my bells to ring at once. <laughs> uh, the, normally, he writes uh, stories set in the South, but this is the portrait of a marriage being reinvented in a small town in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And pretty much everyone I know who has read it has said, if you start here, it's going to immediately send you into Yarborough's backlist to just binge through everything else wow. that he's ever written. So I have this lined up for Beach Week in a couple of weeks. Nice. And um, then I will probably go on a long and sorted love affair with Steve Yarborough. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, long and possibly not sorted. I don't know how uh, how much reinvention that marriage yeah, requires. Right. But uh, that one <laughs> is getting lots of good and interesting buzz and talk from folks I trust. So I'm excited to check that out. And the paperback pick this week is a book that I just read and really loved. Oh, it's, um, this is back- out in paperback now. It is. But now it is. Uh, and uh, as always, the books that we highlight on new books have have already been published. So right. by the time you listen to the show, you'll be able to uh, run out to the store and pick them up or download them onto your e-reader. So paperback this week, Battleborn Stories by Claire Vay Watkins. So good. Short stories, right? Short stories. A bunch of our people writing. I remember Liberty, um, our, our own Miss Liberty loves this book. Yeah, this was her favorite short story collection of 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fantastic. These are... Um, this, they're all set in the American Southwest, um, time frames from the mid 1800s up through what feels like present day, you know, like that dry desert, mm-hmm. very spare prose for a very spare, um, environment. The people are all sort of like just, it's so dry, not even words grow. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, Jeff. I know. Yeah. Hey, it's agricultural agricultural metaphor. Yeah. I can't. I can't. Right. That's true. Uh, yeah. The people, you know, are sort of shaped by this landscape and they're just refined down to their core elements. Uh, it's her prose is gorgeous. I it's so gorgeous that I can't hate her for being two years younger than I am. It's so super <laughs> successful. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, and the very first story in the book does a thing that I think is uh, that I always think is fascinating, where um, one of the characters has the author's name, and she uh, is living in a boarding house in the desert with a person who may or may not be her half sister um, from her father's days in the Manson family. Hmm. 
And uh, man, I did some serious Googling of Claire Vay Watkins after I read that story. <laughs> <laughs> like this character has her name and I want to know how much of this is true. And I didn't really turn up much, but I love that mystery. Yeah, I like that. That yeah. was born by Claire Vay, uh, Vay Watkins. And, uh, Watkins, just as you expect, but middle name V-A-Y-E. And if you if you like short stories, man, you're, you're going to love that. So those are the new books this week. And I think that's our show. That's our show. And we're going to tease next week's show. I will be um, in... in um, uh, on the beach at an undisclosed location. Um, but you're going to have a guest and I'm not going to say who the guest is, but I'm going to say this. If you like bookish podcasts, you're going to probably know this person. Is that a good tease? I think that's a good tease. That's a good tease. So Rebecca will be back, uh, and she will have a co-host. Yes. um, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing. I am really excited. This person is, um, one of the inspirations and the reasons that my other podcast book yeah, book just, Rages, yeah. was ever born. So I have referred to this person as one of my fairy pod parents Yay, I like for that. a few years and you'll get to uh, meet the mystery person next week. So let's do our, let's do our uh, vital information. I'm Jeff O'Neill. You can find me uh, at, on Twitter at reading ape. And I am Rebecca Shinsky and you can find me on Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky, S C H I N S K Y. Let us know about if you have a stat we asked for, you got, a complaint, you got a concern, you want to throw us some laurels, podcast at bookriot.com. If you want to rate the show, that really helps people find I saw we crossed 50 ratings this week, which is mm-hmm. super awesome. Do that on iTunes or wherever you can listen to. We're reading all those reviews. We so are. Have feedback. You can leave it there. You can leave it in a comment on the podcast uh, post, which is bookriot.com slash category yeah, we'll, slash we'll podcast. We'll have those up on, usually I publish those on Monday. So mm-hmm. sometimes we publish the show and it goes out to your um, podcatcher or wherever you're subscribed over the weekend, but the show notes actually don't come out till Monday. So you can always come check that back. We got shiny new apps for um, iPhone and iPad and for Android, wherever you get your app search for book riot and those will pop up they're free dedicated um players for just this show super easy to use they have a nice little black and white distressed uh branding on there you can think of us and looking at them longingly and i think that's it what is it what else do we usually say i can't even remember so I much stuff to say we have all we i think we have said all the we things said all the things we're now done. we're just gonna go read all the books we're gonna go read all the books thank you guys so much for listening Thanks. and i will catch you in two weeks check in next week with rebecca and our very special guests have a good week Bye.